Well, thank you, Huey, for reading the word and for praying for us. And thank you, Elder Bob, for that stunning introduction. If I had known it was going to be so good, I would have paid you only half. But uh, the check is in the mail. And I want to thank the rest of you who, who serve and, and help us in the, on Sunday mornings. Not just our worship team, but those who set up, those who serve in different ways. I'm just so thankful for all of you who work behind the scenes. I want you to know that, that I'm, I'm so thankful that there are many of you who serve without really expecting any reward. And that's really how Christian service should be. And so I'm thankful for that. And speaking of Thanksgiving, this morning I want to talk about a passage in the, the Word of God where we read about one who's thankful, the Apostle Paul. And so I've been asked at different times, what are some of the things that I'm thankful for? Over the last couple of years, what are some of the things that, that I'm thankful for? And I can tell you that over the last couple of years that the things I've been thankful for have really been the same. They haven't changed. There's been lots of changes uh, in my life, uh, career-wise, in terms of family and, and different areas. Um, lots of changes, but as far as what I'm thankful for, I'm still thankful for the same things. Because no matter how things might go, no matter whether times are good or bad, trials, joys, successes, through everything, the things that I'm thankful for are constant. Uh, through all the ups and downs, through all the, the difficulties, the joys, and the successes, the thing that I'm most thankful for is the salvation of the members of the body of Cornerstone. And this is the thing that is really the true joy of my heart, and it is the joy of every shepherd, every true shepherd. If you look at the example of the Apostle Paul, you see that the Apostle Paul also had this heart. In 1 Thessalonians 3, chapter 1, verse 3, for, excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter 3 says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. And so, since I've been at Cornerstone, I've always been so thankful for the salvation of believers here. I think there's so much to look forward to. Um, I'm so optimistic, so hopeful for what the Lord has for the future for us. I know that some of our human plans may eventually never come to pass. Some of the things that we would hope for, the things that we would really hope that would, would be. But I know that even if all the human things, all those human hopes are dashed, if the times to come are not as bright as I would hope, then I still am thankful for the fact that I can look at with assurance to say that, there, that the Lord Jesus Christ has done a work of salvation here at Cornerstone. And so my attitude is I'm thankful for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Everything else in life really is gravy, in a sense, or extras. And I think when you start with this perspective, you become truly grateful for the salvation of others. You look at the blessings of life as bonus, as bonuses in your life. Now, sometimes I can be forgetful. I know some of you, too, about those things. But I want to bring out to this morning the example of one who always seemed to find a place for Thanksgiving. And that's the Apostle Paul. And in fact, for the Apostle Paul, it's often the first thing that he writes about in his epistles is his thanksgiving for those who have been converted, those who have been saved under his ministry. So the Apostle Paul was characterized by a sincere gratitude for the salvation of others. So look at with me in a passage 
that talks to us about the character and the message of a man who is truly thankful, the Apostle Paul. He was thankful that the Word of God had taken root in the heart of the Thessalonians, that they had believed so as to be saved. He was thankful that his preaching had found fertile soil in the hearts of those to whom he'd preached. And this morning we're going to examine his statement on gratitude, and we're going to see how it gives us an insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I want to focus first on this phrase. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all. And so the first thing that the Apostle Paul talks about is his object of thanks. Going on to verse 4, we see that it is the election of the saints. He says, we give thanks to God without ceasing for your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And so it was not just that the Thessalonians were saved, but they were called. And Paul stresses that there was never a doubt as to whether they were going to be saved. It was part of the eternal plan of God. It's the Thessalonian salvation that he has in view, but he reminds them that it was because God had first called them. And so I want to talk a little bit more about the, the reasons for Paul being thankful. But first, let me just give you a quick background on the book of Thessalonians. To help us to kind of set the stage a little bit. Now, the relationship of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians was much like that of his relationship with the, Thessal- with the Philippians, as some of us have been studying through our flock groups. It was one that was warm-hearted. There was a good rapport. There was a loving relationship. There's one of reciprocal fellowship and, and love and, and goodwill. The Apostle Paul had founded the Thessalonian church on a second missionary journey along with Silvanus and Timothy. You can read about this in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul and the conversion of Thessalonians. Paul probably stayed in Thessalonica for a matter of months as he was preaching the gospel and as he was building up those who were hearing the word of truth and who were turning to Christ and being saved. And so what do we know about the time that the Apostle Paul spent with the Thessalonians? Well, for one thing, it was a time of intense ministry. In in fact, the curious thing is, is if you look at the book of Thessalonians, both the first epistle and the second epistle, there's really not very much that's new in the epistle in the area of doctrine. Now, when Paul wants to stress a point about an area of doctrinal confusion or an area of practical confusion in Christian living, he always seems to remind them of the teaching which he had already presented to them. In fact, you find this phrase repeated frequently. He'll say, you know, or you yourselves know. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, For you know the commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. See, the Apostle Paul had had ample time to instruct the Thessalonians in many areas of life and doctrine. And in fact, the Thessalonians were holding fast to that word which the Apostle Paul had preached. They were doing well spiritually. And the Apostle Paul had not only had taught them, but he'd had time to develop and cultivate this personal relationship with many people within the Thessalonian church, much as he had earlier with the Philippians on the same missionary journey. 
And so the Apostle Paul could say that he was genuinely thankful for the Thessalonian salvation. He was endeared to them. His heart was knit to theirs. He was thankful for them and to see the fruit of his work and his ministry leading to the eternal life and the salvation of those in the Thessalonian church. Now for us, now when we say that we're thankful for things, when we say that we are thankful that things are going well or that something good has happened, what does that usually say about our relationship to the person who is doing well? The person to whom something good has happened. Now if I say my friend has just gotten a new job or I'm very thankful for it, it shows affection for that person. And so we see the Apostle Paul's affection, his sympathy, his his concentration on the Thessalonians and their condition and how things are going for them. See, the Apostle Paul, he truly loved the Thessalonians. He was thankful for them. And he was not sometimes as explicit as to say, oh, Thessalonians, I love you. You know, as though we're kind of like a bad beer commercial or something. Oh, I love you guys. But for the Apostle, for the Apostle Paul, he wanted to express his love, not necessarily so explicitly, but he wanted to show his thankfulness and his concern, his care, his interest in what's happening with the Thessalonians. His reflection on their condition to say that he's thankful for them. See, he was thankful for them not just sometimes, not part of the time, but he was, and not just for a special reason, he was thankful for them always. Now, in human relationships, our gratitude is usually pretty fickle. Now, we're thankful one moment when our friends uh, seem to do something nice, and we're not so thankful the next minute when they do something to annoy or upset us. But with the Apostle Paul, he was always thankful. Through the ups and downs, the trials and successes, Paul was thankful. It was a habitual gratitude. It was constant. Now, were there events, were there circumstances in his relationship with the Thessalonians that might have given him a difficult time in being thankful? Were there things that tested the gratitude of the Apostle Paul? Well, yeah, there were. I mean, first was the area of doctrine. The Thessalonians, we find out, were, were forgetful, particularly when it came to eschatology, the, the doctrine of, the, of the, the things that happened in the last times. And first and second Thessalonians are sometimes called, whether appropriately or not, the eschatological epistles because these epistles reveal the theology of the end times, eschatology. But listen again to what Paul says concerning the times and seasons, brethren. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. The Thessalonians apparently had neglected his teaching. They had become forgetful. And in 2 Thessalonians, we find as well in a passage dealing with the man of sin, or sometimes called the man of iniquity or the Antichrist, talking about the great apostasy, some things are going to happen before the second coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul asked them, he says in 2 Thessalonians 2.5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so the Thessalonians were confused about issues relating to the end times. They had not really listened to the message of the Apostle Paul. And so what we see from this is that sometimes confusion comes from willful ignorance. And so people forget the things that they really don't want to know on purpose. If you want any proof of this, you could ask a parent if you, when he catches uh, his child doing something wrong. And he said, I know, I've told you time and again, you're not to take the cookies from off of the shelf. And the young child will, will say, okay, why did you do this? He says, 
Well, I don't know. I don't know. And so the truth is, not just sometimes not just even for children, but even for adults, that sometimes we know the truth, but it's, we willfully deny those things. We're, we're forgetful purposefully. So the Thessalonians were forgetful in the area of doctrine. And not only so, there were Thessalonians who were attacking, who were slandering the Apostle Paul. Apparently, they were saying that the Apostle Paul and his missionary companions were busybodies who were taking advantage of people's generosity as they traveled from place to place. And so Paul has to remind them about the missionary's conduct. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For neither did we... Use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. So the Apostle Paul they, and his ministry companions, Timothy and Silvanus, they were not smooth talkers. They weren't in it for the money. In fact, although the Apostle Paul, elsewhere he says that ministry workers have the right to be supported by the gospel, to be paid for their service. In this case, the missionaries had refused that right. They had exhausted themselves, laboring to support themselves to avoid the appearance of having a sinister motive. Verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you. As you Know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. In second, and similarly, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7-9, through 9, the Apostle Paul talks about how the missionaries refused the financial support, even of willing Thessalonian believers, to leave an example how they should labor and how they shouldn't be lazy or how they shouldn't be idle. So I want you to imagine the, the hurt that the missionaries must have experienced when despite toiling to the point of exhaustion on the behalf of the Thessalonians, some of the Thessalonians would still have the audacity to suggest that Paul's motives were suspect, that Paul and company were greedy, that they were underhanded, or that maybe they were even just slothful or looking from handouts from the Thessalonians. But even so, the Apostle Paul could still say that he was thankful not just for the faithful and supportive among the Thessalonians. That's easy enough. Paul was always thankful, verse 2, for all the Thessalonian believers. Even in the face of hurtful and spiteful things the Thessalonians had said to him. There was no partiality. There was no favoritism. There was no rewards with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul made specific mention of the Thessalonians in his prayers. This wasn't really a small feat when you consider the extent of his missionary contacts in the world. So many different churches in so many different places throughout the ancient Greco-Roman world, and yet he remembered them in prayer without ceasing. What does it mean when he says that he remembers them without ceasing? Does it mean that he prayed 24 hours a day, seven days a week? He was on his knees with his eyes closed? I don't believe so. The Apostle Paul is really just pushing the point here to say that his attitude was one of constant prayer on behalf of the Thessalonians. It's a, an exaggeration. It's a hyperbole. But it points to the fact that his heart was continually to be thankful for the Thessalonians. It was a constant attitude, a constant spiritual condition. In fact, the Thessalonians, and Paul's love for the Thessalonians was so great that he couldn't help 
but to offer praise to God for God's mercy in saving them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 we read, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. And so Paul was tremendously thankful for the Thessalonian salvation. And I want to talk a little bit about the substance of that thanksgiving as we find in verses 2 through 5 here, chapter 1. And in verses 3 through 4 specifically, Paul explains three aspects of his thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' salvation. You can kind of follow three stages in God's salvation plan from beginning to end, from, from the cradle to the grave, for which the Apostle Paul is thankful. And so we find in verse 4 the election by God. In verse 5 we see the preaching of the true gospel by Paul. And then going a little bit out of order, in verse 3 we find the expression of the genuine faith by the Thessalonians. So first the election by God, the preaching of the true gospel by Paul, and the expression of the genuine faith by the Thessalonians. Now Paul's ministry was possible because he could always see the big picture. He didn't just look at the difficulties of the moment, his own tribulations, his own trials and distresses. He could be thankful because he could see the evidence of the gospel taking root in the heart of the Thessalonians. He could see God's plan of salvation, which really started from time immemorial, even to the present time, he could see it being worked out in the Thessalonians' lives. And so first, Paul's thanksgiving in verse 4 was rooted in election the divine choice of God to save the Thessalonians. You know, Paul realized that his work was ultimately assured. He realized that the responsibility and power behind the Thessalonians' salvation did not rest with him. Paul could afford to be thankful because the results of his missionary activities to the Thessalonians never depended on him. Now, man is fallible. The message of man is fallible. can be distorted. Ultimately, the the salvation of others can't depend on the messenger. And for the motivation of, of missions and evangelism, the only real motivation that has any staying power is God's sovereignty over the whole affair. Now, some would say this doctrine of election, God's sovereign choice of people, contrary to giving us hope for preaching the gospel, really undercuts the necessity of, of missions and the gospel. They say that the doctrine of election arrests the urgency to the gospel. I mean, what's the point to, if God will save them anyways? But if this were true, how many millions would already have perished apart from the performance, apart from the preaching of Paul and his companions? And even if we look over the broad scope of history, modern missions really as, as a world phenomenon really did not even have anything to say for itself until the 19th century. There are so many cultures and times and people where the gospel have not had an impact. Even today, throughout the whole world, there are, there are those who have not heard the message of the gospel who are perishing every moment. If this really depends upon us, the pressure is enough to make us explode, at least just to become greatly discouraged. Think about even the Apostle Paul and his legacy there are many cities even in the world in the ancient Near East where the Apostle Paul preached where there's not a lasting legacy, a Christian witness where the Apostle Paul preached, even many of the cities which are mentioned in Scripture today. 
And so the question is, did the Apostle Paul fail? Even if, the, if even the Apostle Paul could not leave a lasting witness in, in some cities and there were some who fell away? Well, certainly the Apostle Paul did not fail. It was through the sovereignty of God that, that anyone is, that comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's attitude, he thanks God for the salvation and for the election of the Thessalonians. He knows that the power of their salvation has not come through his new gospel marketing plan or from his charismatic personality or his, even his authority as an apostle. He knows that it's ultimately the power of God. And the Word of God accomplishes what the Lord will have it to accomplish. As the prophet Isaiah said, My word will not return void. It will go forth. It will accomplish what I purpose for it. Paul writes to the Corinthians, We are the fragrant, a fragrant aroma of life unto life to those who are being saved, of death to death to those who are perishing. And so the Apostle Paul had preached the gospel and there were some who accepted it and some who rejected it. But the Lord Jesus Christ was to be glorified in those who accepted it and in those who rejected it. The Apostle Paul realized there would be those who would seek death. There would be those who would reject the word of truth. But nevertheless, the Apostle Paul could rejoice. He rejoiced over the Thessalonians, those whom God had chose. He had a settled thanksgiving. He rested in God. He waited on Him. He trusted in Him that God would would accomplish, He would bring to perfection the salvation of the Thessalonians. It wasn't about the Apostle Paul and his charismatic personality, his polished ministry skills. His message was not even with persuasive words, with eloquent speech, flattering talk. It wasn't with the wisdom of words. These were the words of the true gospel. And if you're following along, just for the sake of organization, the next point is preaching of the true gospel by the Apostle Paul in verse 5. The word of God was always to be preached. In a sense, maybe we should even stop using that word. Because I think we forget what it really means. To preach is to speak or to pronounce or to proclaim. It doesn't mean present the gospel by pantomime. It doesn't mean sing the gospel. It doesn't mean incorporate it into a dance routine. We never find in the New Testament scriptures Paul's saying that the gospel is to be sung. And Paul does not say that the song of the gospel came to the Thessalonians. He says the word of the gospel came to them with Holy Spirit power. In fact, in every New Testament instance where we find these words for preach translated, there's really two main Greek words for that, it always refers to a spoken verbal message. You know, it's interesting that the praises of God are to be sung, but the gospel is to be spoken. The gospel is to be proclaimed. The Apostle Paul goes on to tell Timothy, preach the word. He says, pronounce the word, proclaim the word. And the word that they proclaimed was a word of substance. It had reality. It was based in truth. It wasn't a hollow form like the message of these mystery religions and cults that flourished in the ancient world. At their base, these these other false religions were just a complex set of nonsense. They were so complex and so confusing and even self-contradictory. But there was nothing 
that was unclear and there was nothing that was seductive about the message of the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul could say that it was not with flattering words in chapter 2, verse 5. It was not with a cloak or a pretext for covetousness that he spoke to the Thessalonians. The hallmark of false teachers is a desire for money, a dishonest gain. But instead, the Apostle and his missionary companions, they worked day and night so that they wouldn't become a burden financially on the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 You remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And so again, the Apostle Paul, they had the right, he and his ministry companions, to receive support for the gospel. They chose not to use it. They didn't want to give an excuse to anyone to, give, to say that they had a pretext for greed. And that word that came... It came with power. It wasn't weak. It wasn't effeminate. They never waffled in their profession. Their message was not one to be whispered doubtfully with timidity. There was no uncertainty about it. It came with the Holy Spirit with conviction. It was certain. There was no ambivalence. There was no hedging. It came with much assurance. They spoke as men who were convinced of the truth which they proclaimed. We find evidence of this not just for Paul, but for others in the early church as well. Peter and John, it was said of them by the Pharisees that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and they perceived that they were uneducated and trained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes, it gives us really a supernatural boldness, an ability to proclaim truth, a confidence and assurance in the validity of the message. And so then, what were the results of the message that was proclaimed? This bold message, this message that came in Holy Spirit power and the full assurance of faith, what we see in verse 3. It yielded a genuine faith by the Thessalonians. The expression of a genuine faith by the Thessalonians. Now, the true fruits of repentance are seen in the Thessalonians. Here in verse 3 we read that the Apostle Paul remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So Paul mentions this triad of graces, these three graces, faith, love, and hope. These are the same three virtues which the Apostle Paul mentions at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. He says to let these remain, faith, Hope and love. And there he actually changes the order from what we find here in the, the book of Thessalonians. Hope and love are reversed here. Now why is that? I think it's be, just because these Thessalonians were suffering temptations. They were being persecuted by those countrymen, those uh, who, were their, uh, who were there with them in Thessalonica. And so I think the Apostle Paul is trying to encourage them to have patience, to have hope. And so he places that at the end to stress that. But first he commends them for their work of faith. This work of faith is it's the service, it's works of righteousness, the, it's personal holiness, God-pleasing thoughts, a transformed life. The Apostle Paul is bringing out the reality that faith is never static. It's always dynamic. It always produces genuine works in the life of the believer. 
We, so we can say that works are the necessary result of faith. And the Apostle Paul is saying that he sees this in the life of the Thessalonians. Not only so, he sees a labor of love that the Thessalonians are putting forth. Now Paul, first of all, had shown his own love to the Thessalonians and his patient shepherding. And we find here that the Thessalonians reciprocated that love. They became imitators, we find in verse 6, or followers. Literally, the word in the Greek is mimics of Paul. The Thessalonians saw the, the faith of the Apostle Paul and his ministry companions and they learned to imitate what was good and what was true and what was right. He saw, they saw in their faith uh, a desire to please God in all things and they became imitators of the faith of the Apostle Paul. And so, again, the Apostle Paul never proclaims his love to the Thessalonians. He simply says, you yourselves know. You know how we worked day and night. You know how we labored and toiled. That was proof enough of the Apostle Paul's love to them. And so the Thessalonians' labor was proof of their love. It was proof of the impact of the gospel in their life. And even the labor of faithful saints here at Cornerstone speaks volumes about their love and the fruitfulness of the gospel in our lives. Now it's true that everyone will proclaim his own faithfulness. Solomon, ever so shrewd in his understanding of human nature, says in the Proverbs, many a man will proclaim his own faithfulness, but a faithful man who can find? In a sense that faithful man kind of almost as a counterpoint or counterpart to that virtuous woman is, is a rare commodity, if it could be called such. A faithful, loving, committed, laboring man, one who truly labors in the word, is similarly rare, who's similarly faithful and committed. But the Thessalonians had abounded in this labor. And so the message of their godliness, their work of faith, and their labor of love, and their patience of hope, had sounded forth. It had not just remained there in Thessalonica, but they themselves became examples to other believers in Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia and the surrounding regions. They'd become imitators of Paul and now they were examples to other believers. Patiently, enduring persecution, suffering trials from those who did not have the same precious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ laboring, serving, loving one another with patience. And so the Apostle Paul was thankful. He was thankful that the word of God had come to the Thessalonians, that, the, that their salvation didn't rest in his own cleverness, in his own performance, that God had elected them unto salvation. The word of God came to them with power, with Holy Spirit power, with conviction, and it had resulted in this work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope. And so Paul was thankful. And so again, who did Paul set his heart and his affection and his love upon? For whom was Paul thankful? For in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all. The Apostle Paul was thankful for everyone. So was he thankful for those who are living in a disorderly way? Yes. Could, we, could he, the Apostle Paul be thankful for those who rejected his patient counsel? Yes. 
Could he be thankful for those who are lazy and selfish? Yes, he could. How about those who reviled the Apostle Paul? How about those who had ascribed to him sinister motives? Those who had slandered him and said that he was there simply to live off other people or to somehow steal their money or the things that were their possessions. Could the Apostle Paul be thankful for them? Yes, he could. The Apostle Paul could be thankful for those who, could, who were the most antagonistic towards him. How about us? How about those who people who are ungrateful, who even question our own motives for serving? Ought we to be thankful for them? Yes, we ought also to be thankful. Must we, must we with an earnest and joyful heart be thankful to God for everyone? The answer is yes. See, the mark of a Christian is the breadth and the universality of his love. A Christian's love is universal. See, even an unbeliever can sometimes express thankful affection toward others who do good to him. Isn't that true? Now, some of us are not truly thankful for others. There's some of us who are nursing grudges. There's some of us who are unforgiving. We're unforgiving. We may not call it that. We might say, I can forgive you, but I don't have the same joyful affection or the same thanksgiving for you anymore that I used to. Or maybe a variant of that would be, I can't treat you the same way that I used to before. Well, beloved, that attitude is totally unscriptural. And so my suggestion that thankfulness and joy over others should involve a positive emotional response to them. Should we always be thankful? Should it infuse and affect our emotions? Yes. It did for the Apostle Paul. It was something that consumed him. He was constantly thankful. You can't think about the welfare of someone else. You can't be thankful for someone else constantly, for all people, and not eventually have your emotions fall into line and experience that emotion of, of love and thanksgiving as well. See, for the Apostle Paul, it consumed him. It was a priority for him. And for us, it should be as well. We should never let bitterness linger. If we're at variance with someone, and we see someone thriving, we see them doing well spiritually, they're prospering, can we honestly say, God, I thank you for what is happening in the life of that person? Now, again, we forget the humanity of the Apostle Paul sometimes. We forget that the Apostle Paul could experience slights and injuries and insults. That the Apostle Paul could be hurt by people in the church. More than anyone else, the Apostle Paul was hurt by people in the church. And yet, his was the most gracious and joyful and thankful attitude of any. We give thanks to God always for you all. Don't ever let your prayers be hindered, not even for a moment. For some of you, you have difficult relationships with those who are around you, even with those who are close to you, even with those who are believers. There's some of you I know who are crestfallen, broken-hearted over the failures of others and how it's brought, in some cases, even disaster into your own life. And I know even for myself, that sadly over the years there are 
our brothers and sisters, even close friends in Christ that sadly I've lost respect for over the years as I've seen their behavior which is not fitting, not proper for the gospel. And yet even so, I thank God for them. I thank God for them. Now there are many, even in our body, I, I know that are delight to be around you who serve simply and faithfully, who are earnest in heart and character who are genial, who are warm, who are truly humble, whose hearts are filled with joy and love and openness to people. And I want you to know that to this weary program, you've brought light and cheer and refreshment on my own heavenly journey. And I want to be honest to say that there's others I've counseled. I want to, and I want to speak not just for myself here, but also for the, the elders and the other leaders of the church. I think sometimes it's difficult for the, the elders just to speak from their own hearts about these things and the things which, which really just rend their hearts and are breaking and which are so emotional for them. But there are others who have been counseled to whom I poured out my heart, given of my time and energy and strength, to whom I've listened to patiently, instructed earnestly, reached out with genuine goodwill and hospitality. And in some cases... There's been absolutely no response, no growth, no passion, no love for people. And honestly, it saddens me. And yet, I want to say that on my knees before the Lord, in the secret places of my heart before the Lord Jesus Christ, I can say that there's not a single person in this congregation for whose salvation I am not sincerely grateful to God. And I know that the same is true for for other leaders in this congregation as well. I'm a tremendous optimist with people. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit which he sends us, has great potential to work grace in our hearts. And so I'm always looking forward to the work that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are going to do in transforming life. But regardless, I I am sincerely grateful for the salvation of those at Cornerstone. As the Apostle Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning as we've studied your scripture. Really just a time to Observe again the heart of the Apostle Paul and his thanksgiving. He was thankful because he loved the Thessalonians. He wanted their faith to be one that would grow and flourish. Lord, I pray for us that we would truly be thankful. We truly be thankful not only for those who encourage our faith, not only for those who build us up and strengthen us and encourage us. Lord, I pray that we be thankful, thankful for the salvation of every brother and sister in Christ. I pray that we would open up our hearts, O Lord, to those who have sinned against us. That we would rejoice in the work which your Holy Spirit is doing and will do in their lives.
that we'd be thankful for their election. Thankful to know that their salvation is sure in Christ because they've received the word of power, the word of the gospel, a sure and steadfast word. Lord, I pray that we would excel still more, that we would abound in thanksgiving, would abound in gratitude and in gratefulness, that you grant us a heart to love and to shepherd and to care for one another. Lord, I pray if there would be any who are nursing hurts or grudges and bitterness, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would melt that bitterness away, that they would come with humility and simplicity of heart before a brother or sister to ask for forgiveness. I pray, God, that they would restore fellowship with a brother or sister with whom they've fallen out. I pray that while we have opportunity, Lord, that we might always be thankful. We might always be thankful for everyone. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the example of a truly sacrificial servant, a shepherd, like the Apostle Paul, who could have such joy, such thanksgiving, even for his enemies. Lord, we pray that the same heart would be ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen.